Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Happy New Year! Uh, we are today talking about Children of Men, the 2006 film directed by Alfonso Cuaron, written by Alfonso Cuaron, Timothy J. Sexton, David Arata, Mark Ferguson, Hawk Otsby, based on the book The Children of Men by P.D. James. Mm -hmm. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, writer Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. Writer Brian Bittner. Hello, amigo. And editor Alex Calleros. Hello. So I think this will be a pretty short episode. Um, Children of Men <laughs> is a perfect movie. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mm -hmm. And we can all go home now. Hold on. Can I add that it's uh, it's great? No, that's kind of the same thing. Yeah, okay. I'm good. Cool, great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. <laughs> it, I, no, I watched it again just now, like just this morning before this podcast. And I was trying to figure out if there's any part of it I don't like. It's just every choice made is perfect. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how it's so perfect. It's so texturally layered. It's so meticulously crafted. Every shot of it is there's loaded with meaning and symbolism and like thematic depth and character development. World just, building. Oh my God. The the casting, the production design, the cinematography, the yeah. music choices, the sound design, like on every level, this movie does it the right like how I would consider it to be the like the right way <laughs> like this is, this is what everything I want from cinema put into a single movie which just feels like a miracle to me like how did this movie get made how does this exist it's just too good yeah, yeah I think totally. every, every once in a while a movie comes along that you're just like this is the sort of like the tent pole you know like because mm. I can I've said this before I watch a movie sometimes from 1950 or 60 that I'd never seen before and I'm like Movies were this good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Granted, I'd seen other movies from the period, but still just like one comes along where I'm like, holy crap, like how did this movie exist? And then like the next three decades of like mediocre movies happen. <laughs> right. And I feel like, you know, 2019 was a great year for movies, but yeah. Children of Men 2006 still feels like it's like the movie to beat right now, which is impressive. Yeah, I was. So this morning uh, we had the Patreon chat for Lessons from Screenplay patrons that have the Google Hangout. And so I was chatting with a couple of the patrons uh and one of them asked uh everybody what their like one of their like favorite theater memories were and oh. of course i immediately went to children of men because i remember being in film school so like just ripe to fully appreciate yeah, same the amazingness same. <laughs> yeah uh and sitting in a theater and like like disturbing the people around me by how much i was freaking out about how amazing everything was <laughs> And particularly, I remember my brain breaking uh, during the, the like, car scene. The car scene, yeah, the yeah, first yeah. like like long take. Where just, this is impossible. <laughs> what I am seeing on screen is impossible. Yeah. And like especially in two thousand six, not like getting how they did it. Like it was a very important moment for me. And I feel like yeah, it's like you said, Brian. It's one of those tentpole films. It's just like someone made perfection, and now we have this for forever, and we can use this as a litmus test moving forward. Well, I think for me, because I saw it also in film school, we went to the same film school, uh, and I, it was a really seminal moment for me because I think that winter, both Children of Men came out and also The yeah. Fountain came out. Children of Men came out on Christmas Day, which right. is like, you know, so right now it's early January. We just had a batch of Christmas movies and they are... Star Wars and cats and little women. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what people and are... And 1917. And 1917. Limited release Absolutely. So um, but yeah, so it's like, when you think of like the Christmas Day movie you want to go see, you probably think of something more like one of those things where you can take your whole family and you can take your kids or whatever. 
obviously children of men is not that we've also had like girl with the dragon tattoo and hateful age sure, like it's sure, not sure. always i mean it's but a warm season it. still right. so yeah. yeah but i'm just saying like the actual christmas day drop mm-hmm. is a really bold choice for this movie and of course you know we can get into it but it's a nativity story a lot of people have said um which it kind of is but yeah it's interesting i remember seeing it that december too the same winter you're talking about and just I mean, it, it's incredible. It, it just blew yeah. me away. Well, I think what I was going to yeah. say was that it was right in the middle of my college experience, like right smack dab mm. in the middle. And it was kind of as I was getting into the production concentration of film school, where the first half was more about film theory and criticism. So it just, I was just so inspired coming out of that winter because I saw Children of Men and I saw The Fountain, which inspired me in a different way. And I just came out of that moment just oh my god i want to be a director i want to do this because these theater experiences i just had were some of the most powerful of my life so mm-hmm. and i everything... really credit this movie as just propelling me in this direction it, it was yeah. like a moment of like maturation i feel like yeah. as a filmmaker of like appreciating like yeah the level that film can get to and that it can still happen like today right there are still new like... cl- new classics are being made right? yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And everything that like that came out of that moment was like the one shot, you know, and the long oneers and stuff like that, I, which I don't know if they've been surpassed, you know, like I don't know either. I, I feel like I can see the stitching now in a way that I still can't see it in Children of Men. I, I watched it and I, I didn't I, I was kind of looking for it and it's seamless. It's really seamless. Well, in certain of ones it, I yeah. can detect it more than others, yeah. but yeah. The car scene I feel like Ugh. is the easiest to detect. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. me cuz it's mm-hmm. the most like you can see the CG, like bridging things, mm-hmm. like the windows shattering and sure, like, stuff sure. like that. But yeah, a lot of it holds up really, really well. Just like, it, for th- being the first one that did this a right. lot, it's amazing how it's still one of like, the best right. example. It's like mm-hmm. the Jurassic Park kind of effect with right. visual effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, we had rope way back in the 50s sure. and stuff like that. So this certainly didn't invent the one or, and, you know, even going further back in like Touch of Evil, some of these ones that we really were pushing the envelope in terms of this but i think that you rarely get a great one shot that isn't gimmicky right and there is a certain point in this movie where you almost feel like they're showing off a little bit (laughs) where like for me the birth the like long shot that has the birth in the middle of it is the one where i'm just like come on like (laughs) i just watched that woman have a baby that's crazy right but because of the documentary style of the whole thing, this like really intense, really gritty, visceral, hand-held, really gritty, yeah. the handheld everything, it does feel like it's not so gimmicky where it, it is actually contributing thematically to what's going on. And like the style of it is part of the theme. And it's like, it's really effective. I feel like, not that I didn't like Birdman or anything like that. And I'm really excited to see 1917. You have to find that perfect marriage of material and style and yes. everything and get it to sort of coalesce into this beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. What I know about the plot of 1917 is it makes a lot of sense. Sure, yeah. But Birdman, it's like, eh, why? Like, you know, and, and right. I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think the single takeness of that movie makes the movie worse. Mm-hmm. I just think that, like maybe not the birth as much as the car scene and the battle scene like Ugh, the, the long, battle scene but the long take just like it puts you in there and it does not let you escape Mm-mm. you know it's like mm-hmm. you don't get a second to like look away even when like yeah. the characters get respite you as the the, the yeah. audience don't get a respite and also the movie has a lot of just single shot like wide shots where like you know theo's in the foreground and people are having a conversation in the yes, background yes. and like long takes that aren't 
five minute long takes, but are still like 30 seconds long or something. And I think all of that just makes the world feel more real and lived in. It also is just more impressive to, mm -hmm. to watch, but it also just makes me feel like I am in this world. I'm watching these characters. We're not cutting back and forth between everyone's faces for no reason. If I want to see what this guy's reaction is to what that guy said, I can look over at him. I don't mm -hmm. need the camera to cut over. It's, it's so masterfully done. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm glad you brought up that example because I, I think now when I watch it, my favorite long take is the one where Theo is in the foreground and Michael Caine is telling the story of mm -hmm. him and his wife and yeah. his son and like Theo is the one in focus and just like all of yeah. it is just working just so well to enhance that moment on all the levels and it's not showing, it's not in your face, but it's like, it is doing that long take thing. And I think like you're saying, Trisha, that's I think what why it, the long takes for the most part don't pull me out of the movies because it's it is woven so much into just the, the style from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And it's all like yeah, it's not like they picked a fun moment to be like, it'd be cool to do a long take here. It's like right. the whole thing is like there's clearly so much consideration gone into each moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just like it's just beautiful. Well, I think it's 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 a movie that as I'm watching it, it feels like no frame is wasted. Yes, like, there's no there's no moment that I want to ever look away or look at my phone or do anything else because I'm gonna miss something. There's so much mm -hmm. richness in every frame, and the background details, the lingering kind of on just a moment with a random extra playing a refugee. Like oh my god, there's just so it's there's stories. Like, even the people they cast as extras look so believable. You you feel the weight of this universe, this world, and their stories in every frame. I, I I've never seen a movie not break the reality of the film so seamlessly throughout the entire thing. I, I never get a sense of artifice or oh these are just extras. This is just a movie set. This is just a movie. Right. Mm -hmm. It's it it doesn't let you go that way. It feels like it exists beyond the edges of the frame. Right. Well mm -hmm. and the texture of the world is there. So yeah. this movie was nominated for screenplay, um, adapted screenplay and editing and cinematography. Obviously we're not best picture. Not, not best, best director. director. I think that was the year when I I decided I didn't care about the Academy Awards anymore. <laughs> I was just like, this is one of the best films I've ever seen in yes, my life. Yeah. And it got passed over. Yeah, I can't. Yeah. And it did not win any of those for the record, right. which is also It didn't win best cinematography. Like, yeah. how? Yeah. What? It's nuts. It's <laughs> but I do just want to shout out one of the many things that probably should have been nominated for and possibly won is production design. Yes. The production Zombie. design. Lol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it is crazy. And I, you know, it's really fascinating the idea. I, I just love everything about how this came together because you have Alfonso Cuaron, one of our most amazing directors, shooting a very British film. And so, you know, he talks about when you like read interviews with him about like, let's turn London into Mexico City, mm -hmm. basically. And mm -hmm. like, let's distress it. And like, let's, you know, basically all the most shiny places like Piccadilly Circus, let's destroy it and that right. kind of thing. It's that texture and how like richly lived out the world is where even when you have great depth of frame or great distance of so thinking about that battle scene where you can see all the way down the street and you go all the way into the apartment building. It's like we're not on a set like we really have destroyed buildings and no matter which direction the camera goes, there's even, you know, beyond the edge of the frame, you know that the world is all the way pushed out to the corners. It's just brilliantly done. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's something that 
we've gotten to that point now. Not every film can afford to do this kind of stuff, sure. obviously. You know, for Roma, Quorum built an entire street. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that when you go back to the early ages of film, well, there was a reason there was a lot of cutting and close shots because yeah. there was set people over <laughs> to the side yeah. or in, you know, yeah, they're in a studio in Warner Brothers or whatever. But I think that whenever you can, um, you know, actually Little Women does this too, where it's just like, just here's a, some beautiful scenery. We're just going to show you people existing in it. And that's going to be wonderful. <laughs> and I feel that almost nowadays when I see a movie that just has a lot of cutting and feels very, like it's staying very close. I'm just like, why? Like, yeah. did, did, we don't need to do yeah, that. Yeah, what anymore. are you hiding from me? Right. Like, what is, what if, is if it has fake... a budget, if it has a big budget, then yeah. Yeah, right. don't, don't use the techniques that we need for a lower budget movie that's trying to hide something. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, like, but I guess you know, time is the other sure. budgetary thing. And like, I feel like that's one of the, the classic Definitely. stories of the battlefield long take was like, they were there for 14 days. They shot it for the first time on day 13 didn't work and then they got two takes off on day 14 and the last one right. was the one that they right. had to and, use and the blood Whew. spatters on the lens and they're yeah. like right. well, that's, that's the one we're using which I love well that was like, a great mm -hmm. example of Alfonso Cuaron I think in an interview said after that take he was so deflated he was like we can't we can't use this right. the blood splatter and the, 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 blood, the DP yeah. was like that's amazing thank god we got this you know yeah <laughs> it was, it was, yeah great story but then also realized having it on for the full take was too much so they hired someone to paint out the blood for like the second half of the shot yeah mm. and it, so this is a thing that i can't confirm um so i feel kind of weird bringing it up but i was when i was reading through the wiki today on children men there was something that suggested that maybe that the battle shot wasn't all like one single take it was kind of like ambiguous like there was an implication by the visual effects people that obviously they stitched certain things together. Mm -hmm. And so it's just weird because in certain articles, they talk about it as if that is one of the shots where they did that. And in other articles, they were talking about it as if no, like that is all one continuous take. It so, doesn't it kind of doesn't matter who to me, cares? you know, because yeah. Yeah. It, it looks the same either way. Like, yeah, I know. mean the stitching. So when you think about the car sequence that you were talking about earlier, where you know when you read about it that they had built this special car where like the seats go down so the actors get out of the line of the thing and the windshield pops out so they can move the camera back and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's like if you are going to all the trouble to get that much practically in the shot, then you get a pass from me on stitching it together here and there right? because you're still doing the work. And it is in your I agree with you that it's maybe like you can kind of see it the most, but if you're looking for it, not so much that it takes you out of the story and not so much that it invalidates all of the things that we're talking about that make these long takes so powerful. Right. And so mm -hmm. for me, I'm with you. I, I don't think it matters. I think that I'd like love to never know where it's exactly stitched together at every mm -hmm. moment. You know what I'm saying? I think lifting back the curtain in that way would be unpleasant when the magic is already so strong in front of the curtain, you kind of don't want to see back there. Yeah. I think it bothers me more like like in Birdman, like you were saying, Brent, yeah, like where right. where I can see the stitching and it is taking me out of it and it, it feels like, well, you made this choice to do this thing mm -hmm. when like maybe you didn't need to do it this way. And so anything that, I don't know, it's probably a completely unfair thing to like ding something for. For the record, I really like Birdman. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. For whatever reason in Birdman, when the light falls on the guy in the beginning, oh, like, yeah. I've never laughed so hard. <laughs> I don't know. Like physical comedy for some reason gets me every time. And that is the funny. Anyway. Um, yeah. So so I, I feel like it it is like fine and good in Children of Men. It is just in other cases where one like long takes are used. 
I feel like it's almost like if you if you were going to have to cut anyway, then like, why did you commit to mm-hmm. doing? I don't know. Well, again, because of what it makes the audience, ex- what yeah. it makes the audience experience. Yeah. Yeah. Because in Children of Men, there's a really strong argument for not just the impressiveness of a long take, but right. like, I remember in the theater during some of those sequences, I had never felt so glued to the screen. I had never felt literally on the edge of my seat, physically actually on the edge of my seat, about to like fall off, so engrossed. And the stakes are so high. I mean, talk about a movie with stakes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like literally the highest stakes possible uh, in this in this movie's universe in this mm-hmm. world. Also, just the dynamics of you get this kind of up and down motion of a respite after a really mm-hmm. intense sequence, and then it just kicks you right back into an even more intense sequence. I mean, when they're going into the refugee camp and she starts going into labor, oh my so god! Right. <laughs> it's just like, oh my god, you're really doing this. And then they take away Miriam right there, which yes. mm-hmm. it's Pam Ferris is tremendous in this movie. Okay, I love who, who all plays, the cast. Oh, they're yeah. amazing. Um, but the scene where, like, so she's been there for the bulk of the movie, you know, and we're used to seeing, you know, when once we lose um, Julian, when she dies in the um, car, it's horrifying, but it sort of adjusts our expectations of who our characters are, right? Where it's like, and it helps reinforce this moment of like, oh, how cheap human life is, right? And a- so, Anything could happen. Right, yeah. exactly. Right. Ups the, yeah. the rules, the rules are If you're going to kill your Julianne Moore character, yeah, right. you know, 25 minutes into the movie, then who's going to live to the end? Which is really, really smart writing. And there are very few filmmakers I can forgive for putting Julianne Moore in a movie less than I want her to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But she, like... Once that moment happens and we realize, okay, we are not safe. None of these characters are safe. It shakes us out. And then when they lose at the beginning of the sequence you're talking about where Miriam gets ripped away from them and we realize we're not going to see her anymore either. We're not going to know what happened to her. It makes that scene in the refugee camp that much more harrowing and difficult Mm -hmm. where you realize the only person left is Theo, basically. It's just, yeah. And then that moment of... Um, I don't know, like unsettling you or just scaring you puts you into that last like sort of third of the movie or the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie where you realize, okay, we've lost everybody basically. And now we only have these two characters to cling to and there's... They're so unsafe. Yeah. I don't know. It's very yeah, When they survive anything, it's, oh my it's by a hair. It's, it's a miracle. It's yeah. always by a hair. Yeah. There's something very unsettling just in general about a character just leaving a movie. Yeah. You know, because usually it's like, oh, we're going to kill this character. We'll kill him on screen. Or like, you know, we'll right. show or something. Or dramatically. Or- right. Uh, Orange is the New Black did uh, some a lot with immigration in their last season. And there's a character I think's been there since episode one who gets deported in it, like in the season and they literally never show her again. Like, wow. and the last episode does a pretty good job of here's where everyone is. Even the characters who had like sad endings. You can kind of see how they're maybe coping with it. Nope. Like you just don't see her. And there's something just so unsettling about that. Yeah. Just gone. Yeah. Well, it's like using the medium to like. Right. Yeah. Evoke that emotion. Yeah. And exactly. That feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's great. Yeah. I think that's also what is so powerful about this movie is it forces you to look at actual situations that have always been going on in our world but maybe more so now (laughs) more more visibly now but just intense human dramas Mm -hmm. that are that do occur all the time in this world that we are usually not aware of not looking at not really thinking about and this movie just puts you emotionally and viscerally in the middle of it and, yeah. yeah, and again, I think 
the choice of having a Mexican director step in and tell a story in England, which like, obviously we have one country that has historically been war torn and one country that has historically been basically stable. I mean, it's really, really, it's a really perfect marriage of like filmmaker and material and it's really great. It, it, yeah, I think isn't Handmaid's Tale like this little too, where it's just like, we're just going to show you things that are already happening, but it's happening to white people in this movie. So <laughs> now you're going to care. <laughs> the, thing about, the thing about Handmaid's Tale is that there are not the same consequences. So like mm. characters don't just leave Handmaid's Tale at right. all, even when they probably should. I just mean the, yeah. the idea of the sort of like, now it's happening to white people. <laughs> no, no, definitely. Beyond the Screenplay is sponsored by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. With so much to explore, real projects to create, and the support of fellow creatives, Skillshare empowers you to accomplish real growth. On Skillshare, you can find thousands of inspiring classes on topics including design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. For me, Skillshare is a great source of inspiration. Watching creative people share their process and their projects always gets me motivated to go try something new. I recently watched Temi Coker's class, Digital Poster Design, Combining Images and Type for Powerful Visuals. Temi Coker is a photographer and graphic designer that makes beautiful, stunning digital posters. In his class, you start with a simple photograph and add expressive elements to transform it into a striking poster that celebrates your subject and makes a statement. One look at his work instantly filled my head with ideas and got me excited to go out and shoot something. So if you're interested in exploring your creativity, head to Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to get two free months of premium membership. Once again, that's Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay to get two free months of premium membership. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. But actually what I'd like to hear about is the video that you made about this, which was two years ago? Uh, I believe so. I believe it was November 2017. So yeah, just over two years ago. What made you choose it? So this one was actually, uh, I was reading uh, Creating Character Arcs by Cam Wayland. Wayland. This was one of those rare times where it was like, oh, this. there was a chapter on like how to construct your first act that I thought was just very well written and concise and conveyed things in a way that really resonated with me and so this was one of the rare cases of uh, there's this topic that i want to talk about what's the best thing to look at for this topic and i don't even know exactly how i made the connection but i i thought children are men or maybe i think i had also just seen logan that's what it was. I'd just seen Logan. And so that was in my head while I was looking at it. And so then I was looking at Logan. And then if you watch Logan and you've seen Children of Men, you can't help but see the similarities in that. And we are going to be talking about Logan soon. Yes. Um, so we won't go too much into that. But so it was kind of looking at Logan, seeing the similarities to Children of Men. Uh, it just seemed like a good, both seemed like perfect examples of this kind of description of the first act that she was talking about in her book and that comparing them, you know, they're similar in some ways, but genre wise, they're pretty different, like a superhero movie and mm -hmm. this kind of drama thriller and like, you a know, a very dark horse of a superhero movie for right. the record. Yeah, yeah right. for sure. And still <laughs> not a for science... taking your children to <laughs> Logan. Yeah. It's still a science fiction drama horror. So you can Definitely. see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it seemed like a thing that would catch people's attention of like, oh, I maybe never thought of these two movies as being similar. Um, and so that was kind of the inception of it. And I, I feel like both Logan and Children Men just have these like amazing like first 
acts that they're just they're so good and they just do it all really really well and i I feel like children men was also fun to analyze because it was one of the movies you know i saw it in college before i really was had my super analytical brain like figured out and so diving into looking at the script i was kind of curious to see like oh like what is the script for this going to be like and it was really interesting discovering how like it does all the things that you're supposed to do and it does it in that kind of miraculously effortless way where you don't it's invisible structure it all just feels completely natural and organic the exposition is flawlessly delivered it's so subtle and that opening scene where he's you're they're watching it on the news broadcast where like baby diego has died and everyone is weeping and Mm. mourning and theo just gets his coffee doesn't care oh and then it blows up so it's like within that like what 60 second scene mm-hmm. maybe you get so much information like here's what the world is from a science fiction standpoint here's what the world is from a political threat standpoint and here's who our protagonist is at least with regard to this situation you know it's really cool it's actually like it's kind of before sunset right They're the same movie it's just, <laughs> just kind of going through real time basically just like hidden structure well and i think the thing i really resonated with the chapter in creating characters are creating character arcs um was this idea of like the normal world like the character's normal mm-hmm. world versus the doom world that they go into right and just the idea that you know, the normal world should really reinforce the character's yeah. lie. And I feel like mm. Children of Men especially is such a great example of that where Theo needs to learn to not be apathetic. He needs to learn to care about humanity. But look at the world that he lives in. And of course, you would like, if you want to survive, you kind of have to be apathetic because it's too much to take everything that's going on around it. And it's, once again, I think it's so, it's become even more prescient <laughs> as yeah. time has oh gone on. Oh my God. It's very easy to fall into apathy, I think, right now because the world is overwhelming and so kind of daunting to grapple with. Right. Yeah. It's a very relevant theme. (laughs) No, and exactly. And I loved what you said in the video, Michael, about how the lie that the character believes has to be sympathetic and relatable. And so we see how Theo believing this lie enables him to live like if he were still standing in that cafe feeling devastated he would have been blown up right and so we are very sympathetic where we're like we we like theo we want him to live and so like maybe he shouldn't care like maybe it's better not to care we see that then this happened to everybody who cares in this movie gets like julian dies right there like pretty early on and and we see all of the devastation and it's just like the only reason theo's alive is because he's looking out for himself first right and so it's sort of like yeah that that selfishness we are sort of and especially in like western culture we sort of reject selfishness it's not very sympathetic but when the world is so harsh then we kind of get it and that's sort of how you know what you were saying it's when there's so much human suffering what are you supposed to do right if you can't care about all of it then you have to shut yourself off to some of it and, well, and it's also just the shutting off dilemma. I think, yeah, the, the what's so cool upon uh, rewatching this movie, you see these motifs of alcohol, cigarettes, these kind of vices that are used to numb oneself. And he literally has to give up both of them in the birth scene. He has to give up the oh, cigarettes to get rid of the gypsy woman, to get mm-hmm. her out of the room. And he has to use his alcohol to wash his hands to deliver the mm. birth. Mm-hmm. And just like there's this beautiful motifs like that in this movie that aren't they're not in your face they're not trying to be like look at this you know representation of this theme they're just naturally a part of the movie but they're there and they're 
they're there to find on repeat viewings and they're so beautiful. Mm-hmm. This movie that's... rewards its viewers yeah. like, the more that you watch it. Definitely. It's, just, it's, the, it's Theo at that moment. He's fully gone out of the numb, the numbing himself mode and he is fully committed to this cause. And it's just... Oh. It's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, real quick, another nice piece of exposition is um, that when Jasper starts to tell his joke about mm-hmm. the human project. And first of all, it's like putting Theo against Jasper and seeing sort right. of how they deal with this world. Um, but then Jasper starts to tell the joke, which first of all, the joke itself is about the premise of the movie so you're getting the idea of the world oh why can't people have kids and then he theo interrupts him and starts he's like oh the human project such a bunch of nonsense so it's like again a berry exposition through conflict and that kind of thing like there's only one reason why he is saying to another person in the room who already knows all this stuff it's because he is trying to make a point about it you know and i just think that's really cool and it's such a good example of like it's two friends hanging out, but it's a scene with conflict in it. Right. Like you can have mm. both of those things. Right. Yeah, you Not don't conflict have... with a capital C. And yeah, they're not right. actually mad at each other, right. but right. they're having a debate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just it's, actually it's, Jasper's not even having a debate. He's just like, I tell my joke. <laughs> right. That's true. <laughs> Which is even even more it's subtler conflict. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Just don't interrupt me. Yeah. I also really like that they don't how um sort of measured it is that we get uh theo's backstory it's not like theo walks out of the cafe at the beginning and looks at a photograph of his dead son and it's right. just like oh. right <laughs> like the way that it holds it back and holds it back mm. keeps us interested in theo and like what is his deal exactly right. and so and the, the camera that- shows us that photograph mm-hmm. and i think like the filmmaker is exactly. allowed to show you something like that without a character having to like you said like look at you know yeah exactly yeah. there's something so like I don't know why it works in this movie so much better than other movies, but just I I'm I never feel like it's cheating when he kind of floats over mm-hmm. you know a and series of photos or series of right. The world feels so lived in and there's usually it's usually kind of just like almost an introduction to a scene, just kind of giving us the texture of the world. But there's so much information in it. I don't know. It just it doesn't. It never feels like a shortcut or cheating. It feels just naturally a part of the filmmaking. Yeah. And that and that's something we we talked about before with Quaron. I call it this sort of incidental magic. You know, where it's mm-hmm. like in uh, in Harry Potter, you have a guy just like stirring his coffee with his finger. A spoon is stirring coffee by itself, and he's just moving his finger around. And I know I mentioned this on a previous episode, but then uh, in Children it was the Men, Minority Report episode. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll just think, think about like that world, same sci-fi sort of stuff, world yeah. building. Yeah, how it feels more authentic. Right. When it's just shown to us but not like right hit highlight so in, yeah. in children of men you have the like the uh hud is on the dashboard is on the uh, windshield instead mm-hmm. of the dashboard and then you have nigel's son doing his candy crush with his finger right <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then even something subtle like um his london 2012 olympics yeah. uh jersey which the movie came out in t- 2006 so obviously they had been announced but hadn't happened yet which is but cool. it's just this like little detail that just makes you go oh this world feels so real and lived in and thought out and and i think that's what you said alex it doesn't feel like cheating because there's so much thought and care put into it and then it's not shoved in your face it's just sort of like allowed to live well and imagine if in the scene where so he gets you know thrown into this van and then they take him to julian and they're talking Imagine if she had been so we kind of glean from their conversation that they were in a relationship and like you used to care about this and da 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 da. But like they don't immediately be like, well, if you would remember our dead son, then again, it still feels like she doesn't bring it up. No, yeah. they're they're talking about what's happening now, and then the like backstory is kind of 
very much in the subtext. So again, it makes you lean forward where you're like, what is their relationship? Why aren't they together? What exactly happened? It raises those questions in your mind and doesn't answer them right away. And not until much later in the movie. It's just, it's really, really well done screenwriting. There's that like beautiful moment when they're on the bus and like she says something about like when they are kind of starting to talk about the kid Mm -hmm. and like he had your eyes and then they just like kind of both look off for a moment Mm -hmm. and like then the sun comes through. It was just like, just a nice little moment where like you just know what they're thinking about and you feel it. And yeah. So, yeah, it's just so good. Well, there's there's so much humanity in this movie yes, also. Yes, yes. That's watching is such a touching experience because you just feel there's like a lot of love for all the characters and even the quote unquote bad guys feel lived in and like they're part of this desperate, you know, uprising movement. There's just there's nothing that's cheap or black and white or doing something that is just a movie thing. It feels like there's just deep, deeply loving humanity poured into all these characters. And it's just, I respect that so much. That the, There's so much care put into, into that. And I know we've talked about this a lot on recent podcasts, but I think a big key about like why this works is the simplicity of the story. It right. really is very simple. And it, like if you boil it down, it's this road movie essentially where the world is dangerous we have to go from point a to point b that's the whole plot basically and you know theo does try to refuse it at first it's this very like archetypal refusal of the call he like reluctantly agrees to do it which you highlight in the video michael but then the rest of it is just like point a to point b there's these other actors that are trying to like throw them off from what their very clear goal is but the goal never really varies and the story is just like incredibly simple and understandable. And and I think that this movie is yet another great testament to how if you take a simple story, you really, really build out the world. You really, really invest in the characters and let them have their moments of and sometimes to the detriment of other characters. Right. So like you have the main character, you have Theo. We're really focused on him. The minute that Julianne Moore walks into this movie, I'm like, oh, well, it's a love story now and they're going to get back together and da-da-da. Subverting all those expectations to stay focused on what is ultimately a very simple hero's journey, it works really well. And I feel like it's such a, talking about the other characters, like it's it's a really good example also of this, like the character web idea that John Truby talks about. Exactly. Of like, like the other characters are built from the protagonist. Like the they're people that he bumps into and he learns something from them or by reacting to them like changes himself so like seeing julian like is i think really important and like ignites this like reminds him of like who he used to be but then that gets taken away and like michael kane is like his friend but completely the opposite and like being at michael kane's house is like you know it's in the country it's away from the oppressive world it's teaching him you know there is still like hope and there is room for love and family and all these things and i think that's it's just such a good example of everything, but it's an example I go to often for that kind of a thing of how to design characters that are there for the protagonist, but also feel real and whole mm-hmm. in themselves and have their own desires at the same time. And it's it's kind of like that No Country for Old Men thing that we talked about in mm-hmm. that podcast that is available for patrons. Right. <laughs> that was our first podcast. Patron only. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, just how like in No Country for Old Men, every tiny character yes. feels like they have this entire life. And I feel like that's very true for this movie, too. Yeah, in in an almost insane way for this movie, because there are so many scenes that pass by 
just random characters and it lingers on them for a split second before cutting away and they all feel so lived in in, mm-hmm. in almost a brutal way <laughs> like, this movie is not even two hours long and, and yeah and it just it covers it's so, so much ground it's so dense and i think it's what you're saying trisha is like it's allowed to do all this stuff because we know where we are at any given moment. We know who our protagonist is. We yeah, know what his goal is. It's not hard to follow. Is. Right. right. You, you don't have to read a single headline of any of the newspaper clippings or notice anything in any of the photos in the background. None of that is actually important for understanding the core story, mm-hmm. but it's there to enhance the richness of the world, which I think is a great lesson because it means you can do amazing sci-fi world building and not have it bog down your actual story. You know, it, there's a way to do this that keeps the story streamlined. Well, I also just appreciate that the sci-fi world of it isn't that crazy. Like, like it's not, you know, he said it's like the anti-Blade Runner. There aren't flying cars. Right. It's not like this unfamiliar future. It's a very familiar future, but too with familiar. enough. <laughs> it, it as feel, it turns out. It feels too plausible. It yeah. felt very plausible at the time as well. Yeah, you know, definitely. It, it, yeah. It was the Bush era. It was, it was a moment of time of, oh, where are we going? Yeah. But even just like technology wise, it was all like right. like stuff that's like a stone's throw from where we are or where we were then and you could buy it. And I feel like I always appreciate that because, you know, looking back, you know, 50, 60 years, like, yes, we have like screens and iPhones and stuff and like technology has changed. But like the day to day like world that we navigate isn't that different. It's not the Jetsons. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah like yeah. still have like cars and houses and stores and like doors that right. are just opening and closing like doors. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like but they're just doors. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. So I, I feel like I, I always resonate with sci fi that feels like that. Like an actual this is practically mm-hmm. what would actually most likely be happening. And right. I feel like they captured that essence well in this movie which is also what logan does there are only some like very few hints that logan exactly. is taking place in a future it's like oh those semi trucks look a different than ours or whatever you know it's mm-hmm. not like look how future it is it's kind of some drone farming happening right yeah yeah <laughs> but i also love the resistance in this movie to like explain why the world is this way so the reason why like they you know, infertility becomes a problem is not ever like solved. Mm -hmm. You know, a bad version of this movie is like about that where it's like scientists in a lab going like, oh, we've solved it now. It was because of X, Y, and Z. And it's not about that. I Am Legend, I think, came out right around the same time. (laughs) (laughs) The first half of I Am Legend is great, I think. The part before he solves everything. And and then he solves it. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So I love, again, we're staying focused on Theo. We're staying focused on the human story of shifting from apathy and like this hardened armor about like, it's too painful to care. I can't care into having hope. It's really just a journey toward hope from despair, which is very simple and it doesn't have to deal with some of these huge mechanical issues that would make the movie feel too big or whatever. Um, or just too sci-fi again. Yeah. Well, when you say huge mechanical issues, you mean the AT-ATs on the beach? <laughs> oh, that, that, was the other, that was the other movie about hope that we already talked about. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> uh, when it's... <laughs> Ryan. Hope. <laughs> uh, what was my thought? Lost it. We, you were saying I was talking about you don't have to solve the problems of the sci-fi world in order to right. tell a resonant story. Yes, I feel like it. It's a a good example of you know you can the audience will go along with a good what if if you establish that quickly, and I feel like you don't need 
like to explain it mm-hmm. in detail. So if you start off with, right. what if there are no more babies? We don't know why, but that's the world you're drop it, dropped into. Yeah. If done properly, you don't need to obsess about the details or like, how do you make that believable and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that is what a story is and can be is like, this is a story. What if this was happening and this is our protagonist and this is the story we're going to tell you. And I think if you can do that efficiently and effectively and keep the focus on the thing that matters, it's much more powerful. It's also a lot easier to sell if you just start your story that way. It's something I never considered before, but like most movies are 20 pages in, the thing happens that is now the the babies stop coming. Right. Exactly. And just think like, who wants to see that version of this movie? You know, like just telling us at the beginning, here's what the world we live in is. It's like, okay, cool. Like the one minute reason, I'm, I'm in. Mm-hmm. The other reason the what if works in this movie is that they actually put the work in to think about all the consequences. Right. Yes. And think of, and build out. Yeah. I mean, Extrapolate. They've, they've done so much work to place us in this moment in time. They've thought of so many world events that have conspired to lead to this UK and I think that is why the what if works because I'll buy this random no babies thing because the world you've built is so believable mm-hmm. around that what if. And to the movie's credit, the premise is is most of what it borrows from the novel. Um, so there are a lot of other things in the novel. Like the novel actually does become more like about a governmental sort of story or like, again, these big mechanical problems of the world where like Theo is poised to become the new prime minister basically at the end of the novel. And so the fact that this really resists a lot of those and in the novel as well, Julian is the one who becomes pregnant, like in the middle of the novel. And I think in an early draft of yeah, like I think when they hired Julianne Moore, that that was going to be she the was role still going to be the one. Yeah, yeah oh, exactly. Yeah. What a change. Yeah, Key was not, Key is not a character from the novel. Wow, Key is a character just created for this um, movie, and I just love her. And I think it goes back to that streamlined thing where it's like if you have it be Julian, which in the novel Julian is not in it, like. Theo meets Julian at the beginning of the novel. Mm. So they're not, they don't have any shared history. So again, you're like, Theo, what are the personal stakes for you? Like, why, why do you care about this kind of thing? And it does become about money, but um, just the streamlining of the story requires sort of separating those two things, uh, especially for a film. So like in a novel, of course, you could interweave these things thematically and like you can have one character that's functioning in, in a variety of ways. But for a screenplay, separating those two characters is really smart because it allows Key to be one thing, which mm-hmm. is this vessel that he ends up having to escort through this landscape. And so, again, staying focused on we're telling one character story, it's Theo's. Really. I don't know. I just really respect it as an adaptation. I could do it without her character literally being named Key. <laughs> but that is about the smallest gripe I could yeah. possibly have with a movie this it's a wonderful. sci-fi kind of a choice right <laughs> yeah. like characters in sci-fi novels have names that are like okay there's like one wide shot of like a car driving by and it's like the field of cows that are burning and then mm. like the leg falls off like right as the shot kind of uh-huh. comes to its end and I'm, that's a moment where I'm like eh, I don't buy that <laughs> so we have two things that are not perfect <laughs> you don't know? buy the timing of the cow burning <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah. Also, also Luke's That's last complaint. Luke's last name is Double Cross, which I just felt was like eh, a little on the nose. <laughs> 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What was kind of interesting reading about the making of this also is like we we wouldn't have children of men without Harry Potter. No. Prisoner of Azkaban, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly. Thanks, Harry Potter. Yep. Because he, he had signed on to start working on the project bef- before doing Harry Potter and then kind of went off and did Harry Potter. And that's where he was living in the UK mm-hmm. and kind of got to know mm. what the politics were and what that world was like. It let him play around with long takes, which he you know got to mm-hmm. do yep. a lot of. And exposed him to visual effects mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. just like all of the knowledge that he gained in Prisoner of Azkaban came in extremely useful when crafting Children of Men. So I just yeah. I like that they're like kind he of also, like siblings. He also yeah, like, they are. like fixed Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, Chris Columbus, your first two movies are adorable, but like... Yeah, yeah. We're gonna get real. here's a right. movie movie yeah <laughs> to be fair that's also how the books go like the first it's two true. books are like a little right. like here's like a simple story and book three is like Gary all, yeah. right. you definitely feel that gear shift yeah i've been listening to them and yeah that definitely happened oh that's right i keep foretting you're new <laughs> yes new we're, to gonna the books. To, we're gonna have to talk like harry potter at some point oh yeah harry potter we i mean like, touched on harry because i feel like also to bring it back to movies i feel like some of the like watching prisoner of azkaban and Six. Uh, Half-Blood Prince. Half-Blood Prince. I feel like are interesting examples of how to adapt a book to a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a thing. That- They're also like the, I think the only two books where like the bad guy is not in them. Right. Which, which is, is so interesting. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, it is this tightrope walk when you're dealing with a novel, which it's sort of, unfortunately for novels, <laughs> it sort of requires distilling a lot of what's in a novel, you know, in in novel writing, you have so much freedom to explore the theme from a variety of angles. Like, and I feel like a lot of modern fiction takes advantage of the form of novels, which is like, we're going to have six characters and we're going to explore the theme from the different angles of six different characters or whatever that is. And I, I love reading and, and um, modern fiction, I think, is in an interesting place in terms of novels. But I think Unfortunately, the constraints of you have two hours to tell a movie requires a lot of sort of distilling what it is. And the best, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but like the best adaptations are the ones that are able to figure out the theme. And then like, so take the whole theme of the novel, whether that is, that's expressed with two characters or six or 12, figure out the most effective way to simplify that and zero in on it and then start almost start over from there. Right, yeah. which, you know, I love P.D. James, uh, who wrote this novel, and I love all of the changes that were made. Like, at the end of the day, they served the story, and they were the right decisions. And yeah. so, it reminds me, one of the earliest changes in Game of Thrones that was made was in the books, there are two bastard sons of Robert Baratheon, and they're both, like, secret, and nobody knows that they're there, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And in the show, they just made them one character. Just and it's like, yeah. that just that's one of those changes where you're like, that makes so much sense. Done. Easy. And then more changes happened. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think also just thinking about the simplicity of this movie in some ways, there is an archetypal, almost mythological resonance to the story. Absolutely. When it gets to the end and they're almost like in a 
like a cave painting like humanity starting over mm-hmm. visuals the you know coming out of the tunnels almost like a rebirth and there's there's a real sense of we are kind of at the end of this era of humanity mm-hmm. it's broken it's done it's kind of unsavable and this is a story about there's still hope potentially kind of starting fresh and it's it's so resonant on that more mythological level yeah it's ancient like the story feels ancient right even though it's set in the future and i feel like we've gotten into a lot of archetypal stories recently on this podcast Um, (laughs) check out our star Star wars Wars. (laughs) nothing but star wars (laughs) but i love that this movie leans into some of the like biblical ancient you know artistic sort of imagery that we have about our our oldest stories of hope right and so like some of my favorite moments in this are the ones you're talking about but then the ones that reference artistic thing like the michelangelo and the pieta and, Mm -hmm. and those things um and how it dwells on sort of the way that we as humans make art about these like deepest sort of longings and narrative forms. So yeah, the, you know, obviously the story with the, that shot where the woman is holding the body of her adult son Mm -hmm. um, is a reference to a photograph, which is a reference, which actually happened. It's like a documentary photograph from a war zone, but which of course looks exactly like the Pieta, which of course is an interpretation of like a Bible event. And so what you have is like, this story from thousands of years ago interpreted and interpreted and interpreted, but it's iconography at that point. Um, and the thing about icons in the religious tradition is that they are images that we as humans return to over and over again, that deepen in meaning as we return to them and bring ourselves to them again. That's sort of like the Christian practice of iconography. And I obviously come from like a religious background. And so when I approach this movie, I approach it religiously like to me this is a biblical story about you know advent and rebirth and um the coming of new hope it's yeah and what no matter what tradition you come from those images are still resonant i think yeah i love that nigel has david and then guernica yeah Yeah. and then the cover of pink floyd's animals album out his window (laughs) out his window i know but again, that's iconography yeah, yeah. that even if you can't immediately put your finger on it and go, I know what that's from or right. whatever, it still has that kind it's of powerful. burned into your yeah. brain. Yeah. Yeah. And Very evocative. Exactly. What are your guys' takes on the uh, significance of animals in this movie? Because like everyone has a dog. Like there's the woman who's like, have you seen my dog? And her dog's actually mm-hmm. hiding in her thing. Then before Key shows her belly, she's like, do you know what they do to Among these the cows? cows yeah. yeah. There's so much of that. And my only take was... I guess animals can still procreate, so maybe they're they're thought of as being a little bit more. Well, it's from the novel, actually, yeah. a little bit. So in the novel, yeah. everyone is adopting baby animals um, oh, because animals are still procreating, and so like people start to like push push their cats around in baby carriages, and like baby animals are very That's much. What I figured, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think that Quadron has his own like take on it here. I think it's a, a motif that he's sort of dwelling on. Well, and they're and they're attracted to. Clive Owen's character like, mm-hmm. like they, 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 they make a point of that you know, mm. the cat climbing on his leg right. the dogs like you they don't like anybody else right I feel like I've yeah I think I remember hearing him talk about that at some at some point I don't remember exactly what he was saying but I, I think it was kind of like I think what I take away from my potentially made up memory of him talking about it and just thinking about it is that <laughs> like I feel like that's almost where the humanity 
comes from in mm. the world. Like there are still things that we care about and that we love and that are alive. And like, yeah, I think that they're all drawn to Theo kind of imbues him with this like goodness. Mm-hmm. And like, it's kind of interesting that we, we use animals to like be judges of character. And I mean, that's as old that as way. cinema itself. Right. right? Yeah. So you have in very classic cinema, the bad guy walks into a room, he kicks the dog. Right. And then the good guy, like the dogs come to him. That's very like language that we understand. So it's, it's extrapolating from that, but you're absolutely right. There's something about if you're capable of caring for an animal, then you are a caring person or that sort of idea where like a good guy cares about his dog. Sorry, Alex's dog is looking right at me. And like, <laughs> yeah. By the way, Alex does not have a dog, but we're recording a children's men podcast, and there happens to be a dog. A dog just here. walked into the room. It's I am, wild. I'm dog sitting an adorable dog named Chester, and as we started talking about animals, he came and sat and looked directly at Patricia. <laughs> so Patricia is our Theo, I guess. He's just like looking at me with his brown eyes, wagging his tail, where I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's adorable. Um, yeah. Also, it, also people yeah. like abuse animals, yes. like like the cows and stuff. So. It's, I think, another take on the theme, like this thing that we treasure is still if we can get something out of it, you know? Yeah. Also, real quick, I think it's weird that we just talked about Blade Runner and just like Blade Runner, Children of Men, the book had more to do with animals. I was going to bring And then the movie, the movie like didn't really talk about that, but still puts the animals in the movie to be like, this is from the book, but we're not really going to tell you what it has to do with anything. It's interesting. Yeah. I feel like for me also, rewatching it recently, like the animals... Uh, still being around kind of almost like speaks to the permanence of life if not humans necessarily right. like life will go right. on with or without us right yeah um so like get your act together humans kind <laughs> yeah. of a thing well and i i really love what Keith says about the cows and you know which she, her little monologue at that scene is that instead of designing milk pumps that are the proper you know the proper amount of nozzles mm-hmm. for the cow's teat is sure they they mutilate the cows to fit the machine mm-hmm. and that just that is that is a really interesting allegory right there right trying to mutilate nature to fit the kind of just mm-hmm. man-made machine version well and of course in that scene you're you're dealing with biblical references to right. like a manger and a nativity and yeah, a barn yeah. and stuff like that and so this very primal like seeing a a pregnant woman about to give birth surrounded by animals. You know, there's this very, our primal yeah. connection to other mammals. That's the archetypal right? to nature. Resonance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is like baked into that. that that's quite really, <gasps> I know. <laughs> like, so how did they do so much good in one movie? Like, <laughs> right. I, don't, I just don't understand. It's so like, ridiculous. How do you do it so right? Every, like, every scene is <sighs> correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, but off of that, the like, um, mutilating nature in order to fit with this thing. I think that sort of connects to a lot of times when I watch a movie, especially like this, that's full of metaphor and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, which is my, you tends to be my favorite kind of thing. I'm always like, okay, what are the filmmaker gods telling us? You know, like in no country for old men, you're like, well, the bad guy got away, but maybe he'll get hit by this cart. Nope. He's still going. Like the filmmaker gods are saying like, sorry, that's not how this world works. Considering that the Coen brothers definitely, don't believe in gods, according to no, no, no. Country for Old Men. I'm, I'm saying I the filmmakers as the god of sure, as sure, the sure. gods of this world, like they are allowed to dictate what happens to whom. The morality and, of the right. world. Sure, yeah. I just thought um, it was an ironic use uh, sure. of the word god. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, but I think with this movie, I was thinking about the, what is the connection here between how immigrants are being treated and how the world is being treated and the fact that like their ability to make more people has been taken away from them. And I think that it's sort of, Alex, what you said reminded me a little bit of that. And I don't, I guess, I don't know if the movie really establishes in what order these things happened or if like inability to procreate caused all this chaos or if it was just sort of this chaos was happening anyway. And also this other thing happened, but it almost feels like a sort of punishment of like, okay, if you, if this is how human, it's like, you know, the classic sci-fi movie, like if this is how humans are going to be, then the aliens or the filmmaker gods or whoever is going to punish them and take this ability away from them. And then you have Key, who is, you know, who is not the most pure, innocent person ever, but like who is a, is pure in the sense of this movie. And Theo is willing to help her. Theo, whose name is Theo, like right. theology. I mean, yeah, we get it. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and then the animals, you know, these these beings of nature are attracted to him because he, you know, I think there's like these things tie together, but in in not an obvious way. In a way where you think about them when you're podcasting about it after having seen the movie <laughs> half a dozen times and not okay, I've already, I'm halfway through this movie for my first viewing and I get it, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. yes, the abyss. Right. Like, right. humans are bad. They should stop being it's bad. Not, okay. It's not beating you over the head politically right. because there's mm-hmm. absolutely right. no doubt that this is politically loaded, right? So political. But yeah. but in a naturalistic, absolutely, perfectly incorporated way. Yeah. yeah. There, it's not a coincidence that the character that was written specifically for the movie that doesn't exist in the book that then becomes pregnant is an African woman, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the cradle of humanity. That's where we all came from. And so... And also an immigrant. And also world. an yeah. immigrant yeah. in this world. Yeah, exactly. All of that is incredibly politically loaded, and yet it doesn't feel like it's beating you over the head with it. And so the same thing that you're talking about, where the quote-unquote plague of infertility, of course, feels like a divine judgment. And mm-hmm. especially as they don't explain it, it feels even more like a divine judgment sort of on humans for being terrible to each other. But then it's like, yeah, it, it plays with all of that iconography. It plays with all of that stuff without feeling preachy, which is a really delicate line to walk that I really respect. I feel like, you know, you have some films these days that are have an agenda, very and, on the nose about it. And <laughs> and not that I don't like any of those movies. A lot of them I do like. And especially like there's a new sort of wave of movies where they are in your face as much as possible about the agenda. And you're just kind of like, okay, so but you're also telling a story. That's fine and good. Um, but I like the subtle touch here. It re- again rewards rewatching. It rewards an educated viewer. Yeah. And when I think there's room for both and I think you need both like I remember when Children Men came out like I wanted to show it to everyone and a lot of people I showed it to that aren't hardcore film people were like it's kind of boring and like why aren't there babies like I don't know I didn't like it that much Mm. and so so kill them (laughs) (laughs) destroy them they wake up in the middle of the night and you're you're having a conversation (laughs) with your other friends they're like all right we'll kill him and then we'll go (laughs) and they have to take your car or just take them to different movies in the future right or like or even like need to get extreme strong reactions sorry (laughs) when we were um (laughs) See, like you don't want to become the thing that you like hate. Uh, also, it's being, 
I wasn't being serious. <laughs> I think or, I like the people you're talking about. You know, yeah, a lot. They're all amazing people, yes. and like, <laughs> and and even like the idea of like long takes. I feel like is a thing that you know sure. is a filmmaker like right, thing that you're that, looking for. Right. Uh, that like it, when I showed it to other people, friends, and like family, etc. Like don't register I'd, it. Right. I'd be they like, really yeah. did you see how that was all one take? And they're like, which part? Yeah, like, same. What, I've, I've watched it with two different people who didn't know it's a long take. And I think right. that's a credit to the film that it right. is Absolutely. not. Right. Right. It's not saying, look how cool we are. Yeah. You know? But also at the same time, this I mean, a movie that I, I also kind of associate with this film, maybe because of the political nature of it, is V for Vendetta, which came out yes. right before and is very obvious about its yep. feelings oh, this, that also came out the same it's like 2005 fall. 2005 i think yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. right around so a year later man because like i i really feel like this is this is a really seminal era for me because <laughs> vendetta i absolutely love that movie and mm-hmm. if for the politics of the time it really activated me it just really yeah. cut to something but it can be off-putting because sure. of how on the nose it is right and maybe doesn't age as gracefully because of that also like i feel like V for Vendetta, I feel like you have to watch knowing that it was made in 2005. And I feel like Children of Men still is as powerful. Absolutely. It feels time, timeless. Yeah. 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 I think, sorry, uh, Trisha, you were talking about the like he, message movies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Boy Erased was a movie that came out uh, mm-hmm. last oh, year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. About the like uh. conversion therapy thing. And like as a film, <laughs> as a film, it was, it was well made it was it was good but it just sort of felt like okay here's something that like basically nobody is for anyway definitely not the people who are watching this movie in the first right. place nobody for the and record. right but but the people who are going to go see this movie that, that was exactly. my problem right. correct it's yeah. like we all are already on board with this so why does this movie seem to only exist to convince right. me this is and bad. in 10 years what is this movie going to mean to anybody exactly right. yeah the thing is you want to avoid like preaching to the choir for one, which is kind of what we're all talking about with a movie like that, mm-hmm. uh, Boy Erased. But you also kind of, if you are trying to create a story that feels timeless and can be what we're talking about, which is a new classic, then you want to not just be preaching in general. And I think the way to not preach is to tell a story that everybody can find themselves in. And so that's where this movie super succeeds, where like no matter what your stance is on immigration, um, which it's it's hard for me to imagine the other side and what their arguments <laughs> are. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to do that. But no matter what your stance on immigration is, there is no doubt that the systems of the world of this movie are very broken and uh, bleak. Right. This movie is devoid of hope up until we like realize what what is going on with key. And so I think, again, returning to these very um, ancient human sort of stories enables people to find themselves in a movie, even if they sort of disagree about what's to be done about immigration. We you know, it sort of finds that thing of like immigration is a problem right now because of. X, Y, and Z, war or climate change or whatever it is. So the way forward isn't always clear, but remaining engaged is something that I think we all need to hear a message about. Well, yeah, and I feel like it doesn't, in not beating people over the head, I feel like it also isn't necessarily saying at every moment, like, this is the solution to this problem. Exactly. It's just saying, it's there's no, this is a problem. There's yeah. no solution presented. It's more of like, right. these are the conditions of this world. Right. Look at them. That's and all like, it does. And mm-hmm. in theory, Great Britain is the only like country left, question mark. So like, Britain maybe. soldiers on. No, there's right. one other one. 
Okay. There's one other one which escapes me at the moment. Okay. Like but, on that on that TV screen where it's like yeah. flashing. Mm-hmm. It's Kuala like Lumpur here or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, just this idea not to numb yourself. That's something that no matter what side you're on in terms of like how to address global issues, being passionate about them and being hopeful and like trying to build a better world is something that everybody can sort of find themselves in and here. Yeah. I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful movie. <laughs> Woo, 2020, here we go. Hello, listener. Michael here. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to Beyond the Screenplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and you have a friend you think would like it, one of the best ways to grow podcasts is by word of mouth. So go ahead and let that friend know that you're enjoying Beyond the Screenplay. Also, if you'd like to help us make more episodes, you can become a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to exclusive episodes and Q&As, like our patron-only episodes on Annihilation, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, of course, The Rise of Skywalker. Anyway, thank you for listening, and now back to the episode. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Children of Men? Alex, do you want to start? I feel like we've touched on so much of it. I, I think probably we've already said this, but the the world building is what I take away from it, which is I don't have to, if I want to build a sci-fi world in a script like this one, where they, there's conditions that are part of the story that are indicative of a larger world, that doesn't have to be said. Nobody has to be right. like saying, Back when this happened, this is why the world became this way. Just just put it in the background, tell a human story that is influenced by the conditions of the sci-fi universe, but don't make the text of the movie about like this sci-fi universe and why it's this way. And here's all the rules and make sure you follow the rules. Like just have that influence the conditions of the story and trust that that is enough to to make it a great sci-fi and just tell a human compelling story in the middle of it. I love that as a lesson because I read a lot of YA fiction and I feel like every YA novel these days that is like sci-fi or dystopian world is about how to like, let's burn down the whole system and fix the whole world. And I would be interested in reading, please somebody tweet at me about like really great examples of this, but I'd be interested in reading like, what if Hunger Games wasn't about tearing down the whole world? What if it was just about one person's story within this dystopian world? I would be Mm -hmm. really interested to read that book. Well, yeah, the the story doesn't have to... Yeah, solve everything. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Or, or pretend like it has the solution. Right. <laughs> right. Because because the revolution within a human soul is compelling enough. Right? Yes. If you can change one person's mind, that in itself is remarkable and amazing. So one human change is enough to compel us. Yeah. Yeah. Is that my lesson? It might be. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> no, I just want to call out one more thing yeah. um, for my lesson, which is just, I think often we get this pressure of in the first three to five pages, we have to have our our protagonist make a really compelling choice. I love the way that this opens where Theo's choice is, it doesn't feel big or revolutionary, but because of the world, it ends up being extremely consequential. So his choice not to care when everybody else is caring is in itself, it feels like sort of the um, photo negative of what we expect from like a first three to five pages of a a screenplay where it's like my character's kind of passive, but in fact his choice is actually very active to not care. And that in itself is the thing that's broken. I really love that approach to like an opening scene and it's so effective. And it's what you were highlighting in your video, Michael, about the end is in the beginning, right? Where he goes from that to 
being separated so much from the crowd at the end in how much he cares. It it just like is this really beautiful, complete arc. It's so believable. The Absolutely. way it plays out. Yeah. You never doubt. Yeah, it might be the best like opening of anything. Oh, ever. with I'd, yeah, like, it's, it's up there yeah, for sure. It just does so many things so effortlessly, so quickly, so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. Brian. Uh, yeah, mine is very much basically what Alex said um, about the sort of world building, and I feel like this movie is a great example of where I want to know more about the worlds, but I don't feel confused or overwhelmed it's not like mm-hmm. suddenly they're like oh we have to go to the jetpack gang and you're like wait who like there's no <laughs> there's, there's no like sudden information that comes out of nowhere where there's like some new faction or sense of magic or sense of anything in the world mm-hmm. it's like no everything we showed you up front everything that you're seeing is an extension of that but also there is so much beyond the edge of the frame that i want to to dive deeper into you know um there's a something my friend Aaron, who is a filmmaker but also has a terrible memory. Uh, hey, buddy, I love you. Uh, he, he told me about this thing, this concept that he read about called distant hills, and based on his memory, it's probably like far away glens or whatever. Um, but it's the idea that when you are watching a movie or reading a book or anything, is that you want to there's some tease of something else on the horizon that you want to 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 see. And, mm. you know, that's the Kessel Run. Cool. Uh, many Bothans died to bring us information. Cool. I don't need to see that. Like, just hearing about it is fine. I don't need an entire movie telling me about right. how both these things happen. That doesn't mean you can't I make I don't that. actually want to see those hills. I'm just glad they're over there on right. the horizon. And I think my... Hashtag be- solo. <laughs> and Rogue One. I'm not taking the bait. <laughs> Continue. Um, and, but my, my, but that's, what's weird about prequels is that like one reason we love a movie is because they have these distant Hills and then prequel people come along and say, let's just tell you all those stories. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that as an idea. It just sort of, sometimes those prequels then don't have their own distant Hills, you know, like they don't right. build their own. They right. don't, they often yeah. don't at all. Um, I think people are getting better at that, but my favorite example of this is in the Hobbit book there's this line where they go to camp on the mountain and it says off on the horizon, the stone giants were, yep. this is, I, what, were, I, yeah. I thought that's what you were going to say. I was like, is it the giants? Right. And yeah. they were fighting or whatever in the storm, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like this beautiful little passage of who are these stone giants? I don't know. And they, they, but they're just there. But and they, then let's make a whole action sequence about it. <laughs> let's in the make Hobbit a movie. Let's make a movie where then like, Oh, the mountains moving. It's the stone giants. Now we have to jump around from stone giants. Uh. <laughs> and it's literally distant hill, distant, you know, mountain people. Exactly. Basically. Um, but it's it like, just did the stone giants kill some of the main characters in the first movie of the trilogy? Of course no, not. they didn't. They're not <laughs> killable. Yeah. They're not killable when they fall hundreds of feet and then the Goblin King falls on top of them and they just go, oh, that could have gone better. And, you know. If that's it's not like the, the opposite phrase, of killing Julian. Someone, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yes, literally right. the opposite. If Let's someone show you. knows the actual phrase, if it's distant hills or whatever, I love that as a phrase, mm-hmm. but someone please tell it to us because yeah. I want to read more about that. I love that as a concept. Um, yeah, just going back to like fundamentals of world building, having it built beyond the borders of your story. Right in a way that's visible is just beautiful. Yeah, I asked my friend where he read that and he couldn't remember. Aaron! (laughs) Poor Aaron. (laughs) I also want to just kind of underscore a thing you were saying about, um, you know, there's no moment of, let's go talk to the jetpack gang or whatever. (laughs) Like, I think that kind of connects to 
what you were saying, Trisha, about the simplicity thing, where mm-hmm. I feel like too often in plots of films that were written hastily, most likely, the solution <laughs> to problems is, oh, well, like, there's this other thing that is the solution. Now we got to go see if we'll win their support. And like, yes, you will. And that's it's not right. fun to, like, solve a problem by introducing a new thing. It's, it's not- almost as though introducing a new character shouldn't be the, a way to solve a problem. <laughs> Among many other things. Or like the go-to way to solve a problem. Right. And I like the children men is, you know, you. there's kind of that with the introduction of um, Jasper's dealer, that guy. Oh, yeah. But it's connected to Jasper sure. as this like pot grower. De- like it's all kind of built in from it's, the beginning. It's Absolutely. very, it's very fluid. And I think right. he even mentions him in the early on Does in the movie. He okay. says, I, yeah. I have, I have a, I'm a dealer for a guy at Brixton. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I feel like that's another little hidden gem in your lesson that I liked, Brian. Um, and I think for me, kind of like I was talking about in the video, I, my ongoing quest to find examples that are very, very clearly convey screenwriting ideas. So like mm-hmm. Inside Out is one that I've talked about a million times. I really like, children of men as this idea of what is your story world supposed to be and not necessarily in the world building sense but for like the protagonist for the character like here are some guidelines of you know don't just put your protagonist randomly in some place like the world that they're starting off from needs to be uh, affecting them in these different ways it needs to be keeping them from dealing with the truth that they need to be and I think it's just it's a elegant and clear example of that technique. And it's one that I return to a lot when thinking about things. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Children to men, perfect. Not always fun to watch, though. I will say that. Sure. Like, I definitely didn't watch this. Like, I saw it in 06 and didn't watch it again until a couple months ago because it's, you know, I have sort of a low tolerance for violence, so it's one of those things where it's like it's, it's just, horrifying. Well, it's, just, it's also just very heavy. Yeah, you know, it, it it feels because it feels so real. Yep. That it, it it like hits my heart harder. It 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 feels heavier than just any other kind of sci-fi dystopian movie that I watch. Yeah. Yeah. Stressful, hard to watch, brilliant. <laughs> Children of Men, <laughs> pure cinema. Yep. Why don't we quickly go around and say what we've been watching recently, Brian? So I watched the uh, Netflix show Living with Yourself. Oh, uh, Paul starring, Rudd? Part, starring Paul Rudd God and bless. Paul Rudd and uh, <laughs> Ashling B, who I love from uh, British panel shows and comedy and stuff, and she's awesome. Look her up. Uh, just like look her up for stand up sometime. Um, but uh, it's I, I'm liking the Netflix approach. They did the same thing with Russian Doll, where it's eight 30 minute episodes Mm -hmm. and it feels really nice because you can you can watch it in one sitting if you want to but it's 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 not so long that it just goes on and introduces a bunch of side stuff you don't care about but it's also long enough that it can really explore a premise um i think weirdly russian doll is basically groundhog day the series and living with yourself is basically multiplicity the series (laughs) but it's the idea of like (laughs) in like the first two episodes let's cover all the what ifs and then where do we go from here? So I think that what I like about this show is it really just takes it to the next step where you go, well, what once that thing happens, now what has to happen next? And it really, it, it, it's not easy, I guess. is The easy way of doing this would be like, here's some hijinks that happen when mm-hmm. there are two clones, but it's not. It, it's let's really deal with some character stuff. The different episodes take place from different 
people's points of view of the three mm, characters so the two paul rudds and his wife and they're all protagonists at a given time which means more often than not one of the other three is that person's antagonist but like you just spent an episode rooting for them and kind of sympathizing with them so i just think the reason i wanted to mention it over some other wonderful things i've been watching is just from a screenwriting filmmaking standpoint it's a really cool example of how to do some things and play it's like a, an experiment almost mm-hmm. where you're like cool i care about this character he's my main character what happens if this other character gets introduced who's him but better <laughs> and has the exact same memories so it's not like he just came to be it's like no they both have the exact same experience and the exact same memories but one of them was just fabricated and now we have to deal with this fact yeah. and like it's just uh yeah i really liked it nice Sounds terrifying, (laughs) (laughs) but also ripe for hilarity. Trisha. So I actually recently got to see uh, the most recent released cut of The Cotton Club, which is Francis Ford Coppola's 19 roaring 20s um, movie about Mm. the Cotton Club in Harlem with like Richard Gere and super young Diane Lane and Gregory Hines, who I love so much. The reissue, the the movie is interesting in Coppola's sort of filmography because it was sort of discarded at the time. It was kind of a bomb and um, just considered like not very interesting or exciting, I guess. Uh, It's about sort of these warring gangs in, in Harlem and New York City in the 20s. But the reissue has a lot more of Gregory Hines's character um, and he plays like a tap dancer in this club just throughout the amount of tap dancing that's in it and it is like it gives you that old school musical thing where you're watching a full body shot of someone for like four minutes doing the most amazing tap routine you've ever seen it's really really awesome there's like an interesting romance between Diane Lane who was 19 when this movie was made and Richard Gere who was 35 that's kind of its own like thing over there but the worst things have been done you're absolutely right about that but if you're (laughs) you know it's 2020 now if you want to like get into some jazz age stuff then the cotton club the new cut of it is really good and it's phenomenal the the production design the costume design it's stunning you can see when you watch it just how much was money but also like time care was poured into it it's just gorgeous so if you are a fan of chicago or anything like that the cotton club is actually a really good one Richard Gere's middle name is Tiffany. Give him a break. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, what have you been watching? So I'm going to do a strange one this week. I'm going to say I've been watching my mind because I went on a five-day meditation retreat uh, for New Year's, which I've done actually the last two years. Um, So it's been kind of a tradition for me, which I really like because it's kind of a good way to almost do a brain reset before a new year and kind of go into a new year with clarity and I was real scrambled and just kind of all over the place in the end of this year. I was just busy and drinking too much and doing too many video games, and I just needed a reset. Anyway, meditation retreats are great because they kind of make you sit with your mind for a long time in a way that is very uncomfortable often. And you are basically have nothing else to do but see what your mind does when it's left to its own devices. And it was really informative to me in a way that I think could be valuable to others as far as my writing process, thinking about what is the self-talk I'm doing while I'm trying to write, when I'm trying to work on my next script, when I hit roadblocks in my writing, what's the story I'm telling myself about why mm-hmm. I'm hitting that roadblock? And you know, it was a, it's a Buddhist meditation retreat I did. It's a Vipassana, which is insight meditation. Um, it's you know, fairly secular the way they were teaching it, but they were using some Buddhist language. And 
there's an idea of the five hindrances that p- come up when you're trying to meditate. Hmm. You know, they're like craving, you know, I, I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I was eating right now or, you know, sleeping or whatever. Um, and, but they were talking about the most debilitating hindrance is doubt. Ooh. And doubt is like an all-encompassing hindrance, which tells you, eh, this probably isn't worth doing, or you're not really good at this. Other people might be cut out for meditation, but you're not really cut out for it, so maybe you should just stop. Um, and I was like, oh. I'm uncomfortable just hearing about this. I've had <laughs> these thoughts about writing, I think. You know, I, I realized that it wasn't just meditation. Meditation was almost a good, like, metaphor for other parts of life, where when things, you don't feel like you're doing it right, you don't feel like it's easy if it should be easier than this if i'm mm. if i'm cut out to do this if i'm a person who should be doing this in these these stories that at least i tell myself and so it was it was a really cool experience to realize oh just like in meditation that's a, that's the a thing popping up in your awareness that is not you that is not the truth that is a thing that you can say hi you're visiting but like you're not the truth so bye now mm-hmm. and all you can do in meditation when that's happening is just go back to the practice so it's just, all right, right now the instructions are to just go back to counting my breaths or listening to the sounds in the room or whatever's happening in the present moment. You can't fight doubt. All you can do is just say, okay, hi, I'm going to go back to my like job, which is mm. to, to look at my breath or whatever I'm doing. So I'm going to try to apply that to writing this year. You know, when those thoughts come up of, hey, this should be a lot easier if you were like a really good writer or if, you know, if you were meant to be doing this, it would just happen naturally. Like, no everything's hard you know every every skill is hard for everybody and the people who get really good at something who become an expert meditator they practice they they just keep doing it yep and that's just you just almost have to like use your brain as a machine and just unfortunately for us our monkey brains only learn things through endless repetition for hours and hours and hours indefinitely so that's the reality people so if you're having writing struggles like i've had just think about the meditation approach and keep going. That's my awesome. 20, my 2020 lesson. That's why I aspire to be a robot. Very challenging. Yeah. Michael? Mine is uh, more profound, I think. Oh, all right. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Bring it on. I recently watched What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yeah. That is profound. So good. I love it. I don't know why it took me so long to watch it. Wait, the movie or the show? The movie. Okay. Yeah. I love the movie. It's so good. Amazing. It's I laugh so much. Yeah. It's like exactly my kind of humor. Like I love Flight of the Concords. Uh and just it's just so funny and silly and goofy in a way that like I I appreciate comedy that is like goofy. It doesn't take itself too seriously. So it's just like, we could just like everyone have fun, but it's still like smart and clever. And and even just, I was kind of paying attention to the construction of the arc because kind of like, how do you make a, like a satisfying narrative out of there's these vampires living in this house? Yeah, yeah. And like they do. It has like all the like nice plot points. It's take It takes you on this very nice ride. You come to care about some people that you wouldn't expect to care about. I saw that movie at the Chattanooga Film Festival. So like before it was in wide release and it was probably everybody's favorite movie at the Chattanooga (laughs) Film Festival. It was amazing. Like I was in a packed out theater and it was like a 10 a.m. screening and everybody was like laughing, crying. Just it tore down the house at Chattanooga that year. It was awesome. I just remember I just lost it when they introduced the like thousand year olds. Oh, it's so good. Like this is too good. I I love this movie now. Yeah. (laughs) Also, there's a eight eight episode 10 episode show out there now is it good uh i watched the first episode which felt very much like here's the movie 
but in a show form. Uh, and we just haven't finished it for no reason other than we haven't. But everyone I've who's seen the whole thing is like, holy crap. Like once I, it gets going. I it's... watched the pilot and I kind of didn't keep watching also. Right. But I, I've heard great things. Yeah, so. I've heard. I think it was like a, about four weeks in people started. Like I started seeing a whole lot of people mm. getting excited. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it. Awesome. Just not excited enough to have watched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Thank you. Everyone for listening, this has been our conversation about the best movie of all time, Children of Men. I think it is. Like, I think it's my favorite movie. I think it's a very strong contender for like top 10 of all time films. It's just like you don't want to watch it a thousand times in a row because it's so horrifying. Okay, I yeah. don't. But that doesn't make a movie right. good necessarily. I don't want to watch Citizen Kane a bunch, but right. it is amazing. We'll have a Citizen Kane episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although- I don't disagree. I just like, you know, it depends on what you want from your quote unquote favorite movies. Sure. Right. True. right. I'm thinking best films. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you to all the new patrons that we've gotten. Thank you for supporting the show. We very, very much appreciate it. And welcome to 2020. Yeah. I hope you guys all had a great New Year's, and we'll uh, see you in the next episode. Adios, amigo. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.